Good day. You're tuned into the 19th edition of Free City Radio. Thanks for being with us. It is Tuesday, the 8th of December. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. On the show today, I wanted to share a conversation I had with writer, broadcaster, uh, Nora Loretto, uh, who talks about growing economic inequality in Canada within the context of the pandemic, but also beyond. We had this conversation uh, shortly after the fall budget update that was given by the Liberal government uh, that really in the media was highlighted a lot in regards to the deficit. One of the main points in this conversation within the mainstream press, including on CBC, was the ways that the Canadian emergency response benefit, the CERB, uh, was really responsible for the deficit, or it was one of the first points highlighted. Um, I saw Nora Loretto uh, pointing out in great detail uh, the ways that bank profits have risen, and also the fact that the Liberal government has taken few steps to enact important taxes to address the growing wealth inequality within Canada that since the mid-1990s has been on a, on a rise. Uh, so I got a chance to speak with Nora uh, about this, and uh, here's our conversation. Uh, sure, my name is Nora Loretto, and I'm a freelance journalist that's based in Quebec City. So, Nora, you have uh, spoken in detail about the ways that we haven't heard uh, a lot of details about the growing profits within Bay Street, uh, banking specifically, uh, within the context of the pandemic. We could also talk about major corporations, but I just wanted to start with the banking sector because we haven't seen any significant shift in regards to liberal policy around uh, taxes on on banking or even speculation. Mm-hmm. Just wondering if you could highlight those issues and why they're important to consider. Yeah, it's pretty shocking, actually, if you think about it, that we're, you know, in month nine of uh, a historic experience of a, of a global pandemic where uh, Canadians have been just battered. And, and it's not as if it's, it's equally, the pain has not been equally shared, right? The pain has been disproportionately distributed amongst low-income and racialized people in this country, especially Black people, Indigenous people living uh, in remote communities and on reserve, and low-income people uh, and racialized people within cities across this, across this country. And so it's quite remarkable that there has been no change to public policy that would try and rebalance some of the wealth inequality that has plagued Canada for so long, right? Wealth and inequality is some of the worst in the, in the world in Canada. It's been growing for decades. And, you know, there was a moment in the 1990s that, that you really can point to as that, that time that Canada went from being a welfare state to being this petro, um, I don't know, petro neoliberal uh, vulture capitalist state. Uh, And it was, you know, it was that that period of time uh, between 93 and 95, where uh, the Canadian uh, government signed free trade and basically assured that our manufacturing industry would just be decimated. And and then cut the Canada Health and Social Transfer in 1995, which pulled $81 billion out of the, out of the, the, the government spending. And so we've never recovered from that. Things have just continuously gotten worse. And you can see that in a whole bunch of different measures. Probably the most obvious and stark is in household 
uh, household uh, debt to, to income ratio, which is somewhere between 158 to 171%. It's fluctuated a bit in the last year. Um, and so, and the pandemic obviously is not like a great time to figure out what that ratio is, but, um, but that means that Canadians are borrowing almost well, like double more than double or almost, uh, well, 150% of what they're making, 158% of what they're making right now. And so under those conditions, it's not too surprising that, of course, uh, during a pandemic, people would be struggling. And so we see that in tons of different indicators. And yeah, as you say, there has been no change to taxation policies. There's been no attempt to, to reduce the profits of corporations that have that have literally benefited from our misery and from the, the misery of their workers, the misery of the people they serve or their clients. And there really isn't any better indication of that than, than this most recent quarter three earnings report from the, from the banks. And, and of course this is only quarter three, right? We won't get quarter four results until February. Um, and, and, you know, the banks are on track to make another year of, uh, if not record profits, uh, still extremely disgusting profits, all in the billions of dollars in quarters alone. And they are, as you know, the CBC would report, beating forecasts, right? It's like amazing. They're beating forecasts. What Canadian can say that they're beating the forecast of how well their life is going as they saw it in March. So there's a lot to pick up on here. I, just in terms of a few details, could you talk uh, specifically about bank profits what what has that meant in hard terms in the context of the pandemic yeah um so bank profits are obviously the amount of money that banks make uh off of doing their business and so they there's two ways that you can make bank profits it's you can make money off of the investments and managing investments and, and and fees banking fees uh you know every time that you go to an atm they make money off of you uh, and then they can, of course, cut their workforce and cut the, the costs of, um, of delivering those services. And so in the last five years, there's been a real push within the banks to, to shed as much uh, of the human resources as they have. There were massive layoffs at the big banks over the last three or four years. Uh, a lot of those jobs being outsourced uh, to other countries where, of course, they can pay people less money. And, um, and then banks also were closing uh, hard physical uh, storefronts. Um, and, you know, one of the worst examples of that, of course, is, is Desjardins, which is supposed to be uh, a case populaire, supposed to be a credit union. Uh, and they, they're, they're closing um, branches in small communities all across the, the province. So, you know, the impact of that is it means that there's people that have no longer any physical access to their, to their banks, uh, or to their, which means to their savings, right? They have to go through the internet and there's communities that aren't connected to the internet. And then we know that, you know, there's tons of problems with people trying to hitchhike to get to larger uh, town or city centers, depending on where they are in this country, just to be able to do basic services like banking. And, and so all of this contributes to bank profits, right? And bank profits have been just like obscene for the last five years, six years, seven years. They've just been on this incredible uh, climb um, where, uh, you know, it's regular, a regular bank profit year is somewhere around $36 billion. Now, as I say, we don't know what 2020 is going to be, but it's pretty clear that the banks, um, in some of the cases of the big banks, they have not made the same profits they made in 2019. You know, we're talking about like 1.8 billion instead of 1.9 or $2 billion or whatever in a quarter. Um, and so it will be interesting, quote unquote, interesting to see how much they do make in 2020. But what is just so remarkable from my perspective is it's like, 
Canadians are expected to like just spend everything they've saved their entire existence to get to this get through this pandemic, right? None of the government programs have been enough to allow anybody to live without a job. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why you might not be able to get a job right now or your job is gone, right? Like anyone from the airline industries to hospitality and tourism to artists to like your job is just stopped for a year, right? And so we're expected to dip into our savings. We're expected to get through a year where we're not going to net profit pretty much anything, right? But the big banks, it's like actually it would be a scandal if they didn't make their billions of dollars again this year, according to how the CBC reported it this morning. And, and of course, it's not just the CBC, like there's a complete consensus from the mainstream media of how you report on bank profits. And then the, the, the narrative gets driven by analysts whose only job is to say, okay, okay, we know that there's profits. We know that they're making lots of money, but there are headwinds. There are negative things that are going to make this hard. They're not going to make this money back in 2011 or 2021. And, you know, I started writing about this every year for Rabble. And then I think I probably wrote about this for the National Observer, where this is the exact same thing that analysts say every single year. They don't change. They don't even change their, uh, allegory for how they're talking about, oh, you know, again, headwinds, turbulence, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, sorry, what world are you living in? The world I'm living in right now is not normal. Nobody is is making tons of money of the people that I know <laughs> to get through this. Mm -hmm. But of course, the banks, the banks are set up to make money. The banks are set up to be the ones that are able to, to sell, to give out those bonuses. And, and I think it's especially important to consider this year that any corporation that is able to be profitable in the pandemic has a huge advantage over all of the corporations who like who just have no ability to be profitable and you know any any of the corporations that do have uh, holdings in hospitality and tourism or or whatever right but if you can say, you know, invest in us and we can guarantee a return on your stocks or your investments, that makes them hugely, hugely popular in comparison to any of the other big corporations that can't make the same promises. Um, and so that means that the stakes are even higher this year for yeah. the banks to make as much money as possible. Thank you, uh, Nora, for sharing that. Can you talk about the liberal government and the current liberal government? I would like to address the 1990s um, IMF-driven policies that took place. Um, but first, uh, concerning the current Liberal government, there has been very little change in policy in regards to uh, taxing banks. Uh, in contrast, there has been the establishment of this sort of cultural framework around the Liberals as being friendly to working people. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about that contradiction and, and how that plays out in actual policy? Yeah, I think the first thing that we should keep in mind when we're talking about the banks is that they are federally, they're, they're part of the federally regulated industries, right? But by and large, working people's lives are controlled by the provincial or territorial governments, um, except for uh, natural resources, telecommunications, and the banking sector. And so as, as a direct, and of course, the public federal service. Um, as uh, the banks are within the direct purview of the federal government, we don't even need to think about radical changes for the liberal government to rein the banks in a little bit, right? Like we could be talking about the most minor changes, which is like, 10 paid sick days for all workers in the federal industries or allowing bank workers to unionize because bank workers are still like by and large not at all unionized and so like not a huge surprise that you'd have this massive imbalance of wealth when you've got such a huge workforce that aren't unionized right like really basic labor relations stuff 
And so, you know, the, the, the refusal of the liberals to rein in the banks through those instruments, like really basic labor protection instruments, is very uh, telling, right? And so it's not very surprising that if they won't even offer paid sick days to all the workers in the federal industries, that they're not likely to probably then tax bank profits at any other level um, that, that I think that the average person would consider to be fair. And so, yeah, so like, you know, the, the liberals, they're, they're a party of capital in the exact same way that the conservatives are a party of capital, but they are much more uh, adept at using rhetoric that makes them sound like enlightened progressive operators rather than like the cruel kind of angry faced conservatives. Right. And so like, it's funny that, you know, they, they appoint Bill Morneau, you, you, there's no person that would be more situated in this country, conservative or liberal, than Bill Morneau to be the finance minister as a signal to Bay Street that that this that we are your government, this is your guy. Okay, so he puts Bill, Bill Morneau into that position until, of course, they make some goofy mistakes over the We Charity, and then Bill Morneau, like you know, has to leave. And oh, they're going to put Christa Freeland, who's basically just as terrible as as Bill Morneau, although she's less wealthy. Um, and and they they manage this this unholy alliance between what should be social democracy, let's just call it democracy, and capital. And they do it so well that it's very confusing to average people who who can hear the progressive rhetoric and who and for a whole bunch of reasons don't necessarily see the connection between the progressive rhetoric and the lie. That, that it's actually hiding, which is what they're experiencing every single day. And part of that's also obscured by federalism, because of course, federalism in and of itself is an, is an anti-accountability measure for, a, for any government. They can just pass the buck, which is what they do all the time. <laughs> and so, yeah, the, the, the problem, of course, is that we're in a, in a situation with a minority government. We have a, a, a conservative government that wants to win on the left and that wants to do as much as what Donald Trump did, but not being Trump, right? We don't have a Trumpist conservative party, but they really would love, I think, probably to be. Uh, and then we have a huge caucus with the block. And the block is just like, they, you know, they just randomly found people off the street to run. And this caucus is solely focused on denying systemic racism, completely forgetting any social democratic groups that that party has. And then we're left with this completely ineffective NDP that, that has no idea how to advocate for working people, no idea how to cut through some of this rhetoric, no idea how to paint a picture of these contradictions and these demands. And so we're left with, you know, you and I talking about, well, why, why haven't the liberals put forward any tax reform? Why would they put forward? Like, there's literally no reason. There's no pressure on the liberals to put forward tax reform. And if anything, there's opposite pressure because they're trying to go after the people that would normally vote for the conservatives. In, in August, um, I, there was a discussion um, around austerity um, and any potential um, uh, policy that would see um, cuts to either public spending or um, public institutions uh, around the deficit. Um, now we can see sort of vultures um, circling, uh, especially from in a rhetorical level on the conservative side, the liberals haven't jumped to that rhetoric at this point in an obvious way. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just wondering if you could address that point, um, if you don't mind, and also the ways that um, the refusal of the liberals to find uh, the courage or 
political will to tax banks or corporations puts us into the situation of deficit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll start with that first. I I don't think that that they believe in taxing the banks. Like I I think that the current Liberal Party is is quite conservative, right? Small C conservative. They're not interested in uh in making enemies with the people that they know that they need on their side. They're they are a party of the corporate elite. They're 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 like it's hard to see who is more with the corporate elite between them and the conservatives. It's really just a question of style, of of them having different styles but cozying up to the same kind of people. Um, but it is very curious that the that the economic update that happened uh, promised $100 billion in spending, right? Because that is very good and very important that they're not turning to austerity yet. And so, I mean, I'm just so like, I don't know, dumbfounded, I guess, that the liberals could be um, so capable of taking $103 billion and still not having anything to show for it in their investments, right? There's still no em- emergency immediate spending going towards people. I mean, the, the, the CERB, the, the, the emergency response benefit has been, has been gutted and turned over into CRA. There's tons of people who've been completely lost up in the red tape re- uh, relating to that. They are just passing out money as much as they can through the wage subsidy and just being like, yeah, 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 we'll figure out this all in the wash, maybe if we ever get to the wash. But, you know, corporations, uh, businesses are just able to take as much money as they want through the wage subsidy and, you know, maybe they'll be audited, maybe they won't be audited. Um, and, and then all of their big ticket promises that you would think would, be, would form the basis of a $103 billion spending package were, were absent, Right. Childcare, they didn't promise any money for childcare. We're just getting another advisory committee, like as if we need that. Pharmacare, there's no money being promised into pharmacare. This is the time where you actually have the political will, the desire of the people, plus adding this into all the spending that they're doing with the National Research Council to try and get vaccine production back into Canada. Now would be the time to have a national drug production plan and make that into a pharmacare plan. Nothing. And then, of course, you know, the, the, the biggest ticket item, uh, which I'm critical of, but, you know, at least we can use it as a way to gauge what the politics of the, of the day are, which is universal basic income, which they used to get out of the we scandal. Right. They used that to change the channel. <laughs> like we're not even seeing anything that resembles at all. Like they've already said now, nah, you know what, this isn't a program that we're interested in anymore. And so this is just the very interesting peculiarities of the Liberal Party of Canada, which is like. They, they have all of the, the, what I, like, let's pretend we're conservatives, all of the bad of the left, like spend, 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 and all the good of the right, and spending to just enrich our friends, right? Um, but from a progressive perspective, it's like, it's so frustrating because you have this moment where you're willing, you have the, the social capital to spend $100 billion, and you've managed to literally not come up with any social programs that will get us instantly out of this mess. And that's because what they're doing is they're just using rhetoric. They're saying this is the recovery. It's like the recovery. Are you like, sorry, how many people died today in Canada? 60, right? No, we're not in the recovery. This is going to get worse the next three months. Is the recovery coming soon? Can we see the light at the end of the tunnel? Should Canadians be hopeful? Should Canadians be excited that this is ending? Absolutely. But from a government perspective, this is all propaganda. If they're spending for a fake recovery, while people today, right now, are, are, are suffering from the fact that, you know, the money they don't have is going into the banks of uh, to the pockets of bankers. Thank you so much for sharing this. I, I did want to talk about the 1990s, but maybe uh, we could get to that in detail another time. But just <laughs> sure. mention the 
the the fact that you know there was a series of cuts um, in the mid 1990s when Paul Martin was finance minister that really created the economics of the political culture of today. Um, but I think you know, given social movement history, um, looking um, at let's say the movements uh, that critiqued. Um, neoliberal frameworks of capitalist globalization and, and how that still is an important um, framework to think about the policies you're talking about. I, I was wondering just the last point I would ask you is maybe if you could talk about the importance of thinking about the economics of inequity as really important for social movements today mm -hmm. in Canada. There is, uh, and I think this is something that, you know, uh, is so important. There's a lot of focus on the manifestations of injustice today um, and the systemic inequalities and systemic racism and how that plays out in individual lives. Mm -hmm. um, but looking at the systemic reasons um, could lead us to thinking about the economics of that. And I think often liberal commentators are um, excused from looking at the economic reasons why these um, as to why uh, these incidents and these uh, manifestations of systemic violence and systemic racism happen. Could you connect those two things? Yeah, I think that if you look at the activism that's happening in many cities across Canada right now around, um, around evictions, like that is the real a good example of where these policies intersect with the day-to-day -day lives of average people, right? So like the banks have been allowed to make these profits and, and the folks who've lost everything, who have no support from government uh, are being evicted. And the, rather than seeing this and, and, and saying, well, yeah, if you're being evicted, we need to give you a place to go. I mean, you have to go somewhere. What governments are doing through their police forces is they're clearing out uh, encampments, right? They're clearing out tent cities and they're clearing out uh, temporary structures. In, in the city of Toronto, they're denying uh, temporary structures as being unsafe or whatever they want to say. Um, and at the same time, of course, they're not, they're not supplying more uh, affordable housing. The, the shelter system is already at capacity. It's not, it's not sufficient anyway during, like at the best of times and during a pandemic, communal spaces like shelters are not at all good. Like we need, we need a, you know, people need to have their own space. And so, you know, the, the, the impact that inequality has in the society um, is, is, to, um, is to really, I think, separate people mentally from how far they are from this problem, right? And, and because it's so raced and gendered, um, and it's rooted in colonialism, right? It's rooted in your, your access to colonial power, your access to hoarding resources, money, uh, access to, 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 to money that you may have gotten just because your families were given free land 100 years ago and you've got inheritance, right? This is how we've created this class structure in Canada. And so I think that, you know, all of our movements have to be very clear in, in, in how they, they orient themselves or how, it's, how they root themselves on these issues of colonialism, racism, uh, and, um, and, well, and I would say, you know, and, and uh, sexism or in patriarchy, um, because this is exactly how capitalism works in Canada, uh, because we're a settler, settler colonial state that's economy is so wrapped up in resource extraction. And I think that we have to be very clear that as 
um, as the, the energy transition accelerates, which is the good news, I think, out of the pandemic, because there's been a lot of excuses for countries that are not as pig-headed as ours to actually come up with new technologies and accelerate that, that transition out of the fossil fuel industry and fossil fuel-based economies, uh, things will get really nasty in Canada because we rely, we have created an economy that relies so heavily on uh, on those jobs, not even on those resources, because it's not like we even get royalties from them, right? But but there's like a conceptual issue because we're like the colonialism is so deep in this country that we we it's 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 like an attack, it's like attacking hockey, right? Oh my God, the world's attacking Alberta, the world's attacking our oil, whereas the world's just going like evolving past where where we find our ourselves, right? And so as things get more um, brutal and vicious, I think you can see hints of that already happening in Alberta, right? With the, I mean, there was a woman who had her, her face smashed in because she was working as a waitress and asked someone to put a mask on and he smashed her in the face with a pint glass. Like this happened yesterday. I, I think that we're going to see more and more examples of this white male rage that has di direct connections to the, the feeling that, that, that I have as a white man to, to take and take and take and it's all mine and I'm entitled to all these things. And so we have to orient ourselves around that. And how do we deal with that? How do we, do we, do we try to reach people who might be on that side? Do we try to reach people who've lost everything because their entire life was wrapped up in resource extraction? How do we reach these people? What happens if they're complete raging racists and they're violent? Like the left has not figured this out yet. And I think that starting with, with these locations of, 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 um, of inequality within our cities, within our towns, and finding ways for mutual aid, creating communities, creating, creating um, uh, confidence among activists to be able to, to take radical action, I think that that is where we're going to start seeing things. And if it means that we have to pass first by uh, like Valerie Plante instead of passing through Justin Trudeau's office, well, fine, we go local and before we go provincial or before we go federally, because that's probably going to be our best bet, depending on where we are in Canada. Nora, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yes, thank you for having me. That was a conversation with Nora Loretto, uh, who is a writer, uh, also uh, co-hosts uh, an excellent podcast called Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. You can find information about that at sandyandnora.com. That is co-hosted with Sandy Hudson. And um, Nora has done a lot of uh, work on um, social justice issues, on economic justice issues uh, over the years. Um, you can find out more about her work at noraloretto.ca. Thank you, Nora, for joining the podcast this week. This is Free City Radio. It is Tuesday, the 8th of December. Uh, thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. On the show now, I wanted to go to a um, piece of music called Be So Glad by Jamie O'Brown, Transcendence. I'll be so glad when the sun goes down. When the sun goes down. I'll be so glad when the sun goes down. I'm
That was Be So Glad by Jamie O'Brown, Transcendence, uh, and this is Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Next on the 19th edition of the show, I wanted to highlight uh, street art. Uh, over the past months, and really since uh, the pandemic uh, took effect in Montreal, I thought it'd be really important to um, step up efforts to use the streets as a space to share public art and also to share uh, art that speaks to the movements taking place to address the ways that the pandemic has uh, impacted disproportionately communities um, facing systemic inequalities both during the pandemic and also before the pandemic uh, looking at the ways that inequality um, is exasperated so over the last months, I've been working to highlight um, a lot of different street art, uh, looking at uh, different issues um, around uh, the Status for All movement uh, that is supported by organizations like the Immigrant Workers Center and Solidarity Across Borders. Uh, that is, of course, to demand for uh, all people living without status to be granted status uh, by uh, the federal Canadian government. Uh, also, we've been putting up prints uh, that were designed by lowkeydesign.net, Kevin Lowe, uh, that say ABCD fund the police. Um, that is, of course, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement to defund the police and put those economic resources back into the community uh, towards things like education, healthcare, the arts, uh, community services. Um, so over the last months, we've been putting up a lot of different um, street art and uh, posters. And uh, one other poster we've been putting up is uh, reading Justice for Dollarama Workers. That is in support of the campaign uh, to support, to back the rights of workers within the warehouses of Dollarama stores. The main distribution hub for all of North America is in Montreal. And uh, the majority of the workforce are non-status people, international students, and asylum seekers. A lot are from West Africa um, and, and other uh, locations in the Global South. Um, and in the context of the Dollarama Warehouse have been facing great injustice and danger in the context of the pandemic, of course. 
Um, so I wanted to record a conversation that I had with a friend of mine, Joseph Sanacondro, uh, who's from New York City but lives in Montreal right now. Uh, he is co-host of a podcast called Sound Prepositions and um, helps run a website, an excellent uh, music website called aclosterlisten.com. Uh, we were out postering and I recorded this exchange. I wanted to share it here on Free City Radio. Here it is. We're on Jean Talon and uh, Chateaubriand. It's cold, but um, thought that it would be still important to poster. I'm with my friend who's an artist and writer, Joseph Sonicandro. He's living in Montreal too. Hey, Joseph. Salut. So we're postering. Um, the ones we're putting up are about migrant justice. Um, what do you think about the ways that street postering is important? You're just telling me a story about graffiti dialogue in a city, uh, but posters, why? Because, uh, you know, the, the, the streets are supposed to be public and common, and so, so much of our, our, our cities and society have been privatized that it's important that we still have this kind of uh, access, you know, and uh, it's not corporate, corporate media advertising. Uh, it's just, um, you know, yeah. so, and I and I think uh, you you know you you have an audience that's uh, uh, accidental and that's important. You know, people what see things. What do you things. mean accidental? Like people just walking by and they see something and they might take it in subconsciously or ne- they might never have considered uh, something. And I think that's important that everything that we are assaulted with isn't just like PR, marketing, uh, massage, the uh, advertising. So yeah, right on. Yeah, and it's ephemeral too, which is cool. You know, it's like this measure of what's going on in the city. I, I love that. We yeah, were seeing talk- last week. We saw your your old posters from 2015. Uh, you know, f- still out here floating around. Layers of the culture. It's like you know, this ephemeral measure of, of the the city as it changes, as the aesthetics change, as the yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like layers of social history. Yeah, exactly. yeah. You were mentioning the posters um, that were put up around. Uh, the anti-austerity protests and sort of like Red Square remixes. Right. Also, we were putting up some posters, uh, looking at posters that were um, about the visit of a really interesting writer and academic and activist, Yasser Munif, who has talked extensively about um, anti-imperialism from below in the Syrian context, looking uh, at the idea of liberated spaces and what that meant in Syria. Oh yeah, that that was a exactly, yeah. really important event, and that whole idea of like creating space, elbowing out space. I think it's really important. Also, in in the sense that you mentioned what we consume visually, and I think often people don't think about the idea of like what is placed in front of us in terms of billboards and stuff. I mean, you're from the New York City area. I mean. Which is both known for the billboards, but also known for street art. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the reason is that it's so ubiquitous advertising that it invites you to fuck with it, to, to turn it, to, uh, to culture jam it or whatever. And when I moved here more than 10 years ago now, I was really struck when you, for instance, the underground, the so-called underground city, you know, when you walk around there, if that were the States, there'd be ads everywhere. But you walk down these oh, long yeah, tunnels yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. like in New York, when you're walking from like, uh, 
there's a long passageway to get to the one of the you know the trains and like Times Square or something. You walk down this Union long connection, and yeah, like yeah. on there's all those old those long long passageways. Sometimes you know a quarter of a mile, and there's just nothing but advertisements for TV shows and movies, and you know mm. makeup and whatever the fuck food. Sure. And so when I moved here, uh, I had a I was walking around in my first winter here, and I was really struck by the fact that. You know, yeah. you've like 38 kilometers of tunnels downtown, and there's no yeah, ads. Yeah, yeah. It's really remarkable. So, but, uh, but I mean, that's also changing uh, in Montreal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's it's not. I guess that's also like an idea to to jump on. There is that nothing's fixed. It's not inevitable. Right, right, and uh, and and when it does come up, like you said, you you know you whether it's legal or not you can you can cover it up you could change the message uh, mm-hmm. uh, man I, I, I can't remember right now I saw something that was really great a really good simple uh, uh, detourment you know um, oh like remixing ads yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. well yeah. I mean that's that's so important yeah um, especially in the in the Quebec context I mean even like the struggle against law 21 uh, that's the law that uh tries to tell public uh, officials what they should and shouldn't wear um, instituted by the Quebec populist CAC government that basically targets um, minority communities, particularly Sikh and Muslim communities. The streets have been such an important place where that law has been contested and, you know, unfortunately a lot in the Francophone media a lot of the voices speaking have been in support of the government. So the streets I guess also are an important place where political debate happens yeah yeah that's true that's another thing that I, I noticed last week when we were postering is the you know uh, and it, it's something that I, I, f- I first realized I, I saw in Italy the, the kind of the back and forth mm. you hang a poster somebody writes something sure. somebody responds yeah, back with yeah, something yeah. else and uh, even though it's always um, dispiriting to see somebody cover up uh, a positive message um, there's something about the because it's ephemeral. Something about the uh, exchanges that are happening uh, between people who are just strangers, and then you have this kind of record of you know, uh, fuck you, no fuck you, or Native Lives Matter, no they don't, no they do. Uh, there's something about at least seeing that dialogue play out in a in a non-institutionalized context uh, that's uh, that's really I don't know, beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the poster Native Lives Matter, which had been silkscreened by a member of the Sidetracks Collective, um, and it was pasted up after uh, the Justice for Joyce uh, campaign was launched. Somebody had graffitied on that poster, and we were we were trying to figure out how to address that. Um, but, I mean, it also shows reality, because there are people who live in Quebec who think that Native lives don't matter. You know, yeah. I mean, on on systemic systemic level, that's true, but um, you know, there's policy fights or struggles that happen in the mainstream media or within political circles, but there's also how those um, struggles take place on the street and confronting the fact that those um, voices do exist, but also pushing back against them, and and you know, we move to cover up that. Um, graffiti on that poster and we put up a, a poster by Kevin Lowe low-key design that said make racists afraid again so we're going to keep postering it's getting it's cold tonight but um, I thought it'd be cool to record a little something here in the alley thanks Joseph thank you thanks that was a conversation with um, musician and music writer 
um, Joseph Sanacondro, uh, who helps uh, uh, run a website called a closerlisten.com. We were out postering um, in the city, in Montreal, uh, highlighting uh, different campaigns, uh, putting up different work. Um, one of the groups that I do make an effort to share work from is the Just Seeds Artist Cooperative. Uh, you can find them at justseeds.org. Uh, it's a great North America-wide and also has become more international now uh, artist cooperative. Uh, great project. Um, also, we've been putting up prints in support of local campaigns here in the city. Uh, as mentioned previously, the Defund the Police campaign uh, here in Montreal, that's represented through Defund the SPVM, the local police force. Um, and also uh, put up art recently in support of Palestinian human rights. Um, Gaza still is under siege. It has been since 2007. Um at the hands of the Israeli state military forces, an air, sea, and land blockade. This is uh, one of the longest military sieges in the world uh, in recent centuries. It's very underreported, uh, but still remains a very pressing issue. This has been Free City Radio Podcast, the 19th edition. If you want to get in touch, I'm at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And um, I'm with you every Tuesday, um, Free City Radio. I'm happy uh, that people are listening. Please tell your friends if you like it. You can subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Free City Radio. And I wanted to go out with uh, a beautiful piece of music by the great singer-songwriter of Santiago, Victor Jara. Ricos, 
cosa que se parezca Mi canto es de los andarios Para alcanzar las estrellas Que el canto tiene sentido Cuando palpiten las venas Del que morirá cantando Las verdades verdaderas No las lisonjas fugaces Ni las famas extranjeras Sino el canto de una lonja Hasta el fondo de la tierra Siempre será canción nueva. Siempre será canción nueva. 